1: Hello, this is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wilson croft and while football continues to throw up plenty for us to discuss, today Rangers win their first Scottish title in a decade in style. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's dominance over Pep Guardiola keeps astounding. Fulham have given themselves a huge lifeline at the bottom of the Premier League as well. Uh, we will ask, do you really need to change the offside rule and what is your club's ultimate run to help me through all of that today matt dickinson tom clark and gregor robertson good morning gentlemen how are you very well hugh thank you
0: a little bit little bit jaded i've worked across the weekend and ended up watching nine matches in total from friday night through to sunday so yeah i I, whether that'll translate into good analysis on this podcast we'll wait and see but (laughs) I, I, I i definitely covered all the bases i started with huddersfield against cardiff on friday night which was not the most entertaining of all the games Nil nil. Mm. Did anyone know Yaya Sanogo, formerly of Arsenal, is now at Huddersfield?
1: I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, the yeah. man himself. He mm. missed a penalty.
0: Mm. Poor, poor bugger. He missed a penalty.
1: <laughs> and did 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 Lincoln get back to winning ways?
0: They did, they did, they did. They beat uh, Crew 3-0. Very good performance. So yeah, Back on liked. track,
1: back on track. Good to hear, good to hear. Um, maybe not a title win just yet for Lincoln. You never know by the end of the season. One thing that is already certain though, up in Scotland, it's an incredible title win for Rangers. They lifted the Scottish Premiership for the first time in 10 years. Celtic failed to beat Dundee United, which sealed the inevitable. Frankly, it is a first title as a manager for the former Liverpool and England captain Stephen Gerrard let's begin today's game podcast with our Scottish football correspondent, Michael Grant. I started by asking him just how remarkable is this title win, given the last decade or so at Ibrox?
3: It's a fairly epic uh, story and uh, storyline, Hugh. um, It it was always going to be... An enormous season for Rangers because of the kind of um, determination to stop reaching Celtic reaching 10 in a row. But I think uh, what we've seen over the last 24-48 hours has been the prevailing narrative of, of Rangers' recovery and um, emergence from what's been a pretty wretched decade for them. No major trophies since 2011. Financial implosion starting again in the, in the fourth tier of Scottish football. And that long journey up with a few stumbles along the way, um, and they always referred to it, their fans always referred to it as the journey right from the start. And that implied, uh, you know, not not just existing in, this, in the lower leagues in, foo- in Scottish football, but making it back. And to them, making it back wasn't promotion to the top flight again, which came in 2016. It was being the champions of Scotland again. And um, they have finally made it um, under Steven Gerrard. So there's various strands to this. You know, there's the Rangers... Uh, um, re-emergence over the last decade, there's the stopping 10 in a row, which might not sound like a big deal outside Scotland, but within the old firm rivalry, it, it's huge. Um, and then there's the the addition of Steven Gerrard as the, as the leader and the icon that's taken them across the
1: finishing line. You've written a feature on everything that's happened under Steven Gerrard at Rangers in the Times right now. Where does this season rank amongst their best title wins though? 28 victories, four draws, no defeats as yet.
3: The numbers are remarkable, they really are. I mean, I I don't think um, Rangers supporters, certainly the older ones, would uh, rank this as one of the truly great Rangers sides in terms of the, the individual players, even Steven Gerrard himself told us last week that he regarded the the team as the superstar rather than it to having superstars within it. Um, So, uh, you know, you you take that caveat, but I think in terms of the efficiency and the relentlessness of the team, um, it's it's beyond dispute and beyond criticism. Um, They are on course to be the first Rangers team to go through a top flight season unbeaten since 1899. Now, now that they've won it, we've seen it in various leagues that teams sometimes drop off when they win a league early, and they might they might actually be more vulnerable now that they've won it. But the number of uh, victories, the 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 few number of drop points, the number of clean sheets are all really off the scale. Um, they're twenty points clear of Celtic. I think that's more likely to widen rather than narrow in the remaining five matches. Um, and they've just not let up from day one. They've they've, they've been relentless and they've not given. Celtic or anybody else a sniff of them um, of hope
1: really, and it's not just the way they've they've cast Celtic aside this season really. Also, their performances in the Europa League has shown us that Steven Gerrard could be building something pretty special. Do you think there could be a period of, of Rangers dominance in Scotland to come? Now,
3: I'm not sure, Hugh. To be honest with you, I, I think there's always a tendency when one club uh, changes the balance of power and tips the scale their way that, w- that we automatically assume that you're now entering a de- you know a, a, a period of, of domination from them. Um, th- much will depend on how Celtic respond over the summer, the quality of personnel that they bring in, both in terms of the manager, the director of football and, and signings, are going to need our after new signings. Um, but what Rangers have is stability. Um, I don't think Steven Gerrard is going to leave anytime soon. Clearly Liverpool are wobbling and when Jurgen Klopp leaves, I think a lot of people will assume that Gerrard might be the guy that they turn to. I think when they do come for him, he'll go. Um, uh, I don't think you um, you would gamble on getting a second chance further down the line. But but that's not going to come this, this summer, I'm convinced of that. So he will have another go, at least one more go. Um, he'll go for the Champions League and see where... His team can uh, get to in that. Can they make an impression at, at the elite level in Europe rather than just the Europa League? Um, so a period of nomination. I'm not sure, but one thing that I do find significant is I don't think there's a single individual player that Rangers would lose that would that would completely unsettle the team. They're such a strong side. They're, they've got interchangeable uh, deputies. In, in pretty much every position so when they have to start selling and the club have, have, have been open about that that they will have to start selling players to, to start um, balancing the books
1: I'm not sure that's going to be particularly ruinous to the team I think I agree with you on that one Steven Gerrard is, himself says this team still has more to go this is pretty much only the beginning for him and it's massive for Scottish football as well that I think if Celtic can be stronger next season that they have those real two Figureheads in Scottish football back where they are. Big for the product of the Scottish Premiership as well. And just finally, Michael, what is the view in Scotland this morning about the fans, thousands of them, gathering near Ibrox and in Glasgow's George Square as well? Well, that depends on who you support. <laughs> I mean, if, <laughs> if, if, if you're a Rangers fan, you think it's uh, entirely
3: understandable and uh, permissible. If you support anybody else, then it's the uh, it's the greatest scandal and outrage that you've seen. I, I think it's significant that politically there's been a lot of condemnation of it. Um, the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, called it disgraceful and infuriating. Um it, I think we've seen this, haven't we, in, in, in football in general. You saw it at the end of last season with Leeds fans gathering, Liverpool fans gathering. Even up here last season, eh, last week on a much lower level, St Johnson fans gathered after they won the League Cup. So I, I think there's an element within football that just goes to hell that this is too big a moment for us not to come out. Um, the numbers were big in Glasgow, there's no question about it, in, around Ibrox on Saturday, again yesterday in George Square in Glasgow, and it, it's not a good look. There's no there's no getting away from it. It's not a good look to see, you know, a couple of thousand fans in close proximity, no social distancing, a lot of them not wearing masks, just acting like normal,
1: really. You know, as if there wasn't a pandemic going on. It's not a good look you. Michael Grant, thank you so much. And you can read uh, what Michael's had to say in the Times right now, make sure you subscribe uh, for all of that. A long read on all that Rangers have achieved and Steven Gerrard's management as well. Uh, Gregor Robertson, massive applause required for the effort of these Rangers players.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's been... Gerrard's kind of stature and presence and aura has not only been good for, Scottish, for Rangers, but for Scottish football. And, I, you know, obviously, I've said before I'm a Celtic fan. Um but undoubtedly his arrival in Scottish football is a good thing. And it's just a, it's a remarkable achievement. I think when, when you, you look at the state of, of Rangers when he arrived and who was the manager of Celtic at the time, Brendan Rogers and how dominant they were, um, I don't think anyone really gave him much of a chance, to be brutally honest, of, of halting ten in a row, which Scottish football is, and particularly Old Firm has been consumed by for a decade. Um And he's done it, and it's a, an extraordinary achievement. And you know, as as Michael was alluding to, it, it, not only that is his achievements in Europe. That's the kind of thing that would make make other uh, other clubs sit up and notice. I think because no matter what we what we say or what people who watch Scottish football a lot say, uh, it's it's still kind of looked down upon a little bit. Um, but when I think he's, I read he's won twenty three European fixtures. Which is five short of Walter Smith's time. That's that's astonishing. And again, some big clubs, some good teams. So, you know, Rangers Rangers have an identity now as well. They have they're industrious, organized. Um they kind of mirror Stephen Gerrard a little bit. So absolutely, I I have no problem in saying that he will have some problem in saying it, but he deserves he deserves. <laughs> deserves great credit. And and I very much hope he, he sticks around as well, personally, because, as I say, his presence in Scottish football is a good thing for Scottish football. And when you look at, you know, obviously he's going to be linked to Liverpool between now and the, the moment he, he arrives at Liverpool. <laughs> Who knows when that's going to be? But really, I can't see where, where he's better off going, where he's better off being. He can do something pretty... Special with them in terms of getting into the Champions League, hope, hopefully for Rangers fans, and you know testing himself against even bigger and better opponents.
1: Yeah, I think after their last win in the Europa League, actually, uh, Gerard now equal with uh, Walter Smith in terms of European wins. Of course, Walter Smiths came uh, in the Champions League, the vast majority of them, and afterwards, Gerard said, "You know, you can't talk about me alongside such a great manager." But but Matt, I think he's got the potential to do so uh, great things uh, maybe a period of dominance coming for Rangers and maybe a future Liverpool and England manager in Steven Gerrard what do you think?
4: Well I guess it is the curse for sort of Scottish football that as soon as anyone does well then um, the next thing we ask is when they're coming down to England um, <laughs> I mean it, it's been that way for a while and, and that is going to now happen happen with, with Steven Gerrard um, you know I, I think I agree with everything that Gregor has said it, it's you know, I think crucially, he's been there long enough that we people have seen that he has a clarity of style about what he wants from his players. I think that's a big thing. I think that's one of the questions that maybe, you know, Frank Lampard has struggled with, you know, Gerard and Lampard inseparable um, still, even in this argument. But I think, you know. Sort of Frank, um, suffered for options and clarity, you know, in that time at, at Chelsea, almost a surfeit of options. And I think if you're appointing a, some, uh, an up and coming young coach, you would want to know that he has a sort of say clarity of thought about what he wants from a team, how he wants to build it. And I think a crucial thing that people say about Gerard is that he surrounded himself with good coaches to help him do that. You know, Gary McAllister, um, on the sort of slightly wiser, uh, the older head, but Michael Beal gets a lot of rave reviews as, um, a first team coach who is someone who, you know, very, uh, smart, um, started off through youth footballs, got South American experience, but, you know, someone who is trusted to, to sort of put the plans into practice on the training ground. And I think that ability to sort of surround yourself with good people is another key asset if you're going to build a a sort of long-term strong management career. I think it's a,
1: it's going to be a strong one for Steven Gerrard to continue what he's done already. A great run in the Europa League. Fantastic title for them. Uh, once again, my thanks to Michael Grant for, for helping us discuss it. And I'm sure we'll be discussing Rangers again before the end of the season because they are an outside tip as far as I'm concerned for that Europa League. And we might not have to wait that long to see Steven Gerrard. Who knows in the Anfield dugout either because it's now six straight home defeats for Jurgen Klopp. His side dropped to eighth. But I think it's Fulham who we, we've got to talk about mostly Here. They impressed once again their survival hopes. Well, they're right back in it. Newcastle, 16th on 27 points. Then it's Brighton, 17th, a point behind them, the same number of points as Fulham, even though Newcastle and Brighton have a game in hand. Tom Clark, it was another fantastic performance from Scott Parker's side.
0: It certainly was. It was of all those games that I watched at the weekend, theirs was arguably the most impressive. Liverpool have obviously lost quite a number of games at home this season now. And this wasn't quite the same as some of those where they just looked turgid and completely devoid of ideas. Liverpool weren't bad, I didn't think, but Fulham were fantastic. Um, Ariola in goal was superb, but Tosin, Adarabayo in defence was superb. He's been you know, great for them this season, slowly improving, finally showing all the potential that he's had. Harrison Reid continues to impress me in midfield. He was good in the championship last season and he's kind of... I'd say emblematic of what Scott Parker's tried to do. You know, he's not changed lots. He's tweaked little things here and there. He's changed the tactics. But we've talked about it before with Fulham, where the last time they were in the Premier League, they chopped and changed so much. They spent so much money. Whereas this time, they clearly had an idea and a way of they wanted to play. They wanted to stick by Scott Parker. If you go back in the season, I think in December, they lost to Manchester City and they only had seven points in December. You know, so... In previous Premier Leagues and with other teams, there could have been calls to change the manager, sack the manager, bring in someone else. Obviously, we saw that with West Brom. But they've shown that faith in him and they're starting to see the rewards because they were absolutely brilliant. I think Lamina's goal summed up their performance as well on the front foot. You know, when Mo Salah gets the ball on the edge of his own penalty area, not every opposition player would steam in, try and steal it from him, take a touch and then shoot. You know, you'd maybe jockey him, maybe stop him from turning, maybe stop the counter-attack, maybe even do a little foul. But he steamed in there, nicked the ball and fired it into the bottom corner. And I think they kept doing that all game. They were on the front foot, pressing It was superb.
1: Uh, Matt, do you think Scott Parker can make a late charge for manager of the year? Um, Well,
4: I I, I don't know about that, but I think it was certainly, you know, he's getting, rightly, getting an awful lot of of praise and, you know, should do, to be honest, even if they end up getting relegated by, you know, the odd Result here or there, which is still obviously uh, possible, but I think the fact the way he's stabilized the team, i think we you know we talked about this a week or two ago about you know he's he's had to rebuild the team on the hoof to be honest to some extent you know they brought in it's a sort of completely different back line um from how they started the season they've had to you know they've brought in some better players, but you know he's also had to sort of coach that and adjust that they've had to he's had to deal with the, the sort of the confidence being smashed in those first month, couple of months of the season so you know he's shown resources as a, a motivator too as a tactician um, and just as a calm steady influence so I think you know Scott Parker's stock uh, has risen whatever happens over the next uh, the rest of the
1: season Gregor I know you don't like predictions um, but at this point how do you see that, that relegation fight going?
2: Well look Fulham the, film, the- the thing they've had six clean sheets in the last seven games. It's just a remarkable turnaround, and for a team that's fighting at the bottom of the league, that's that's going to make all the difference, really. Particularly when you look around it, you know Newcastle having half their forward line injured and being in a bit of state of turmoil. West Brom, West West Brom have kind of solidified things, but they they just keep missing sitters. <laughs> they can't they mm. can't put the ball in the back of the Ridiculous. net. Um, you know, Danny's been a real big focal point for them and he's he's performed well and he's had good chances and he's getting the right areas he just can't apply the final touch so undoubtedly fulham you know everyone talks about momentum and they have it just now and they look as i say it looks really really well co- i've said this before they're really well coached really solid the way that they've evolved this season from last season being so dominant in possession and almost kind of to the point of boredom for some of their fans too, like, they want a bit more dynamism and forward thinking Uh, and I don't think they came into the league expected to play that way but I think they've kind of found that Parker's kind of navigated his way towards a a way of playing that will get them results and part of that has been, as, as Dicko says, kind of transforming the team they've only got a couple of players in the team that were in the Championship last season and yeah, just, I think they're they're looking like they've got a really good chance. As Dico says, even if I did a piece a few weeks ago looking at, you know, the fine the, the fine the fine margins at play at the bottom of the league are remarkable. And even if Fulham were to go down, they've got someone in at the helm there, in Scott Parker, who is really, really promising and they look like they've learned their you know, there are their ways in terms of the recruitment. And Fulham look like a club that have kind of got a bit of a plan now and I I think that probably will keep them up but even if it doesn't it still bodes well for the future for them.
1: Tough games coming up for Fulham against Manchester City and Leeds. They've still got Villa, Arsenal, Chelsea and Manchester United to play. Fulham against Newcastle on the final day of the season, Tom. Will it come down to it?
0: It could well do. I mean, only one podcast ago I think I said Newcastle would just about survive. Having watched them against West Brom I'm now ready to change my opinion <laughs> <laughs> because I, mean, I thought West Brom were the better team in that match as well. Uh, apart from the odd little moment uh, from Willock in midfield for Newcastle, they look pretty uninspired. Um, it could well come down to that. But, but the way Fulham are going, as Gregor says, with momentum and things, you wouldn't be surprised if they picked up a few points against in games where you wouldn't expect them to. I'm not saying they'll necessarily go and beat Manchester City, but I wouldn't be surprised if they went into that final game Ahead of Newcastle on points, with the
2: way things are going, they've just had clean sheets against Liverpool and Spurs. Yeah, like they, are, they are. They are a. They are a tough proposition just now to break down. I I think Anderson as well. Someone who deserves a big mention. He's been. Both of those centre halves have transformed them in terms of, you know, organising players around them. Um, just looking really resolute. That clearance in the last in the last minute. Yeah, the cross, I think it was Andy Runderson's cross and he's kind of it was a, yeah. looked like a shoe-in for Manny. That was that was like a goal. It was remarkable. He's been outstanding for them.
1: Brilliant. I, I love Scott Parker and um, I keep thinking about this Celtic job. You know, I just, you look at the squad that Fulham have at the moment, you, you think, what could he do? You know, I, I, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what the future holds for him.
2: His stock has been strange. Last season, I, I said this before, he's kind of, although they were promoted until he was standing on the turf at Wembley and it was done, there were still question marks about him even from within you know from their own fans you know about his future at fulham and they expected to win the league basically and his stock has risen more this season even until this even before this run his stock has risen more this season because he he seems like a, as as we're saying you can see the plan and he's coaching and the evidence of that on the field and he's also an engaging presence in front of the cameras and that, that's important these days
4: and if we're giving scott parker the full loving is actually um someone told me a story last week actually i, I I probably shouldn't go into too much detail, but let's just say it was someone who was struggling in life a bit, uh, struggling with mental health a bit, and it was Scott Parker um, came across him and let's just say intervened and gave this person more than a shoulder to cry on, gave him some sort of uh, yeah real-life advice, uh, opened up himself, and I just came away thinking, wow, you know, Scott Parker sounds a very nice human being. So, um, I just sort of throw that in. Um, I only say I only heard it last week and, um, yeah, he's, uh, he's more than, uh, an impressive coach from, uh, from certainly from
1: that account. So what you're saying is with your QPR hat on, you're desperate for Fulham to stay in the premier league. That's what you're <laughs> saying. Right, no?
4: <laughs> now we're pushing it. He might be a nice bloke, but no, that's, 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 that's going too far. Um, yeah, no, well, it would be, um. It would be nice to have uh, a few uh, London derbies. Obviously, um, if Brentford want to stay down in the Championship, then
1: feel free. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see what Thomas Frank does with the rest of their season uh, as well. Uh, Lots still to look forward to on the game podcast. We're going to talk about the offside law next but remember uh, if you do enjoy the podcast please leave us a review on apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from make sure you're subscribed as well so you don't miss the next episode or any of our award-winning journalism you can get a subscription to the times and the sunday times and get one month free if you sign up today just go online search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started
0: ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile
1: Let's talk about VAR, baby. Specifically, offside. What, on? What? What's wrong with that? No, I just uh, To
0: be honest, I need that kind of enthusiasm if we're going to talk about VAR, so I'm all for it. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing
1: <laughs> laughing along with you, Hugh, don't worry. I had to go in hard don't on this. <laughs> don't mention the VAR. Don't mention the VAR. Not again. I can tell there's going to be uh, varying opinions on this. Let's talk about offside. I will allow contributions on handball as well on this. Um, you, you think back to Chelsea's Timo Werner, He was narrowly ruled offside for a, a disallowed goal against Liverpool last week. Uh, Harry Kane's goal versus Paris Alice stood, the flag stayed down, but, but VAR helped us clear it up. But it was another narrow incident of the lines being drawn, just went the other way. And now we hear that FIFA are prepared to trial a new offside rule presented by none other than their chief of global football development, the former Arsenal boss Arsene Wenger, who thinks onside should be if any goal scoring part of the body is in line, with the last defender does it fundamentally from a defender's point of view change the sport and if so is it for better or worse
2: I mean there's a pretty big risk of that being true yes it's you know surely defen- I can't see how defenders won't have to drop deeper and is that a good thing for the game I, I don't I don't know I've it's very hard to It also just looks like you're they're moving the line so you're gonna be yes you won't anymore get a goal that we think should have been a goal, chalked out because of you know a shoulder or an armpit, but the the line of measurement will still exist, and instead we'll see goals that stand that for thirty years we would think shouldn't have stood, so you know it's a pretty big shift from one very unsatisfactory set of circumstances to what I think will be another pretty unsatisfactory set of circumstances, so Look, they're, they're trialling. I'll be interested, trialling in China, I believe, I'll be interested to see how, how that works out. But I can't also, from a defender's point of view, as I say, I can't see how you don't have to, you're not going to have to just drop deeper. And I, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing for the sport.
1: Matt, I think Gregor's right. We're still going to need VAR. The lines are still going to be drawn there are still gonna be marginal calls. this doesn't change anything does it
4: uh well I think it's it doesn't change the fact that people are gonna uh, row about it because that's what we do isn't it um you know no no one need be um worried about the lack of screaming and shouting at officials or um so yeah that that will continue for forever um i, I but I do see the point of this trial because I think we have seen um one of the side effects of VAR uh, is that we've seen goals chalked off that we think, you know, in our sporting souls should be goals. Um, and, you know, whether it's armpits or toenails or whatever, I think, we, you know, we look at goals and just think, well, that's, that's not the spirit of the game, that that goal has been disallowed. Now, as you say, moving the line, you're going to say defenders saying, well, you know, that's that's not the spirit of defending, but I think the point is we've got a trial. It's a pilot. Let's give it a go. Let's see how it works. And I mean, when I did the piece with David Ellery, I think it was back in December, that probably convinced, um, in hindsight, absolutely zero people that, bar um, well, was a good idea. Um, <laughs> but um, just made them even more angry about life. Um, but I think it was mentioned in that piece by the head of IFAB. We've been told by other sports, NFL uh, et cetera that it can take ten years of tweaks to try and get a, a system like this sort of properly operational to take ten years to get glitches out to tweak this rule to tweak that rule and this is all part of that um, it's not it was never going to be perfect it was never going to be perfect full stop but it's going to take tweaks and pilots and changes as we go to to get
1: something we're happy with. What I don't get is, were we that unhappy with the current offside rule before we had better technology to, to judge it by? I, I, I don't remember. I mean, look, there was the, the whole sort of daylight stuff. I remember those years. But but the, the current offside rule as we have it, before we brought VAR and lines being drawn onto the pitch a couple of seasons ago, we weren't all saying that this offside rule was absolutely dreadful, were we? And there were always going to be tight calls, whether that was the the margin of error or the of the assistant uh, of assistant referee flagging or whether that was going to be the, the small margin of error that we see on a, a camera now it, it makes I, I can't see how it makes any difference
2: we're changing so we're now changing the laws of the game to suit technology to fit technology that's that's the reality of it and I don't think that's a good thing either as you see, the offside rule there's not <laughs> look. it's not that you're kind of like scared of change necessarily but that's. I think it's quite a dramatic intervention. I think it's, as Martin Ziegler wrote, and it's only the second change since, like nineteen twenty-five, in the offside law. And it, I don't think it's necessary. I think you, you either have better technology to 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 decide what the what's offside and what isn't, or you kind of draw back a bit, as I've said before, on this, on the use of the technology. I, I, I still think you could just get rid of the lines and look at the screen and go, look, that's... That's all, say That's not, and do it quickly.
4: Doesn't it sort of sum up the the climate in which this is all taking place? That the idea of a pilot is getting people alarmed and wound up. And, <laughs> you know, this isn't. This is not. This yeah, is introduced region. a lot. This is you know. This is not changed tomorrow. This is not even potentially going to happen. But someone has said, "Let's go and have a look what this does to the game. Will it be twice as many goals? Will it you know? Will it make as Gregor says? Will it suddenly make defenders think you know?" I'm you know dropping back 20 yards it's you know we need to and some people will say and there's a decent case for saying some of these pilots maybe should have been done before VAR was introduced at all but the fact you know we had to get to a point where it had to be sort of you know tried at the top level but I think with this you know let's have a look let's see what the results are I I don't think there is any harm in, in that I mean that's that's what that's what any sensible sport should do, isn't it? Uh,
2: voice of reason. Matt, no, no, place I, I, <laughs> no place for it. No place for this conversation.
1: <laughs> I, I still don't know why the powers that be in football haven't listened to me yet. I still think there should be a sort of, you know, like an umpire's call, a margin of error where it's so close, a bit like Timo Werner's the other day, where basically the two lines for the defender and the attacker are drawn in such a close proximity that you just say, we, we can't tell. It's onside. You know, I just don't see why they haven't given themselves a third option. Maybe everything in football isn't black and white, Tom.
0: You're quite right. It's, it's a reasonably sensible suggestion, Hugh, which is why they've not considered it, obviously. Mm, um, mm. There's, a, there's a slightly worrying point here raised by Gregor in that we're cha- we, I think he's right in that we are changing the law based on VAR and lines on a pitch. But we will see. Potentially, quite right. Sorry, <laughs> let's all get along. <laughs> change, changing the law based on lines on a pitch but lines on a pitch and VAR doesn't exist at every level of football this is going if, to if, if you've changed the, the offside law to this and then had this law existing in the game at levels where VAR doesn't exist that is going to change the game unbelievable if I'm going to a game in league one and all of a sudden the striker has a you know a greater margin of error the, line, the, the, the assistant referee has got a, a completely different job on their hands. They have a difficult enough job as it is, and the standards aren't great. You see decisions, bad decisions made quite a lot, but that's fine. You know We deal with it. It's a different level. It's a different pressure. But it's going to change the game completely. You're then going to get teams at the bottom of League 2 scrapping for their lives, starting the game, and their back four is going to go no further than the edge of the box. Because what's the point in risking it? No, but seriously, what is the point in risking it if you've not got a computer to back you up and go, ah, uh, yeah, you know what's like there? What? Why are you going to push up to the ed- to the halfway line? It's it's going to change the game completely. And uh, that I, I'm I'm actually all for you know trialing new things, as Matt says, it's only a trial. Let's not get carried away. But uh, do, there does seem to be an element of forgetting that VAR doesn't exist at every level of the game, and. You, we, we talk about Super League and football splitting off, and, and all these things. We're going to head into a, a position where football league, you can keep the old offside rule, right? Premier League will have a new offside rule because you've got the technology, right? You guys can go and have a laugh and scream at the linesman. You can be old-fashioned, traditional football. You guys can be new, new-age VAR fingers law. It, 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 it is, it's fraught with danger, I would say.
4: Just on uh, in my full role as uh, VAR nerd on this podcast, um, <laughs> I think I think um, I think there was a couple. Of, there have been a couple of leagues that have tried the margin of everything, haven't they? I think, um, yeah, they they dared to risk the wrath of IFAB and FIFA. I think it was at uh, Belgium, and uh, anyway they've tried, what you know, as you as you said to you, that you draw the two lines, and if they're basically pretty much indistinguishable then you know you end up having a, a margin for error um but that was sort of seen as going rogue but it, it it has
1: been tried it is it is out there as an idea definitely at least Belgium listened to me anyway um t- Tom do you think we, we we will go from complaining about goals being disallowed that look on side um to the to the naked eye that is to them moaning about goals being allowed that look offside to the naked eye yeah probably.
0: Yeah, I'd say so. As Gregor said at the start of this discussion, it's you're just moving the lines and moving the measurements of what you're talking about. It no longer will be trying to line up two, two different coloured lines on a pitch. It'll be looking at the space between two players on the system. I mean, I, I'm very, very continually conflicted about technology in football because, as I say, I have experience as a fan of watching a game that has no technology in it whatsoever. And you only need to have watched um, the Highlights from the Football League this weekend to see matches like Middlesbrough's against Swansea's, where Middlesbrough were denied a clear goal because uh, it was perceived that um, one of their players had fouled a Swansea player in the box when actually he just slid in, tapped the ball to a teammate who then smashed it into the top corner. Absolutely no bother. The Swansea player had done a little dive and the referee had said free, free kick. Then at the other end, there was a penalty given to Swansea in the same game. So you then had Neil Warnock, the king of moaning at, at referees and about referees, with all the ammo he needed to say, "What, what, what more do we need to do? Why, why isn't this happening?" And a colleague of mine, who's a Middlesbrough fan, said, "I hate VAR, but this, this is why, this is why you need it." So it, it's so difficult, but I, I, I have hope. I have hope. I have hope and faith in someone as sensible. And as knowledgeable as Matt Dickinson, the fact that he's still, <laughs> still doubling down on his faith in VAR. And if if, if 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 we're going for it, if ten years we'll get it right, then fine. Maybe maybe we should. Persist. Yeah, no.
4: If you want to know the breakfast conversation in my house this morning, it was uh, my teenage boys. So one of them had read something about VAR in the championship and said, if that happens. You know, I'm out, but I'm my season ticket's going in the bin or whatever. So yeah, just, I'm, 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 lose, I'm, I'm losing the argument even at my own breakfast table. So uh,
1: don't, don't, don't worry. Listen, it'll be interesting to see if he's got that same reaction if if Queens Park Rangers get promoted and he's going to have to throw his season ticket in the bin because he'll left to use VAR. Then we'll see if he. We'll see if he keeps that energy, as they say. Um, Gregory, it's not just the offside rule though that we 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 don't seem to have got a handle on at the moment. No puns intended. But handballs like this it. weekend, handballs this weekend, unbelievable. Arsenal probably the victims of, of the biggest one. I mean, there's a, a huge inconsistency here. It's massive.
2: Yeah, although I was kind of found myself thinking um, last week when everyone was. Saying what well, all we want is consistency. I was like, no, we don't, because it was an absolute nonsense at the start of the season. I don't want consistency with that. I wanted to find the best you know, the, the best solution, the best decisions now. Um and you know everyone pointed to Peters so when I was slightly conflicted about that. I know this is a lot of people will probably say, What? But it was kind of similar to the um to the Greenwood one in that he wasn't I know it's different in that he had more of an advantage by blocking the ball, but he was feeling for the player. Arteta was saying was, was, there was no attempt to to move his hand out of the way. I, first of all, I don't think he had the time to do it, and secondly, it wasn't intentional. So I know that's not important in, by the laws, but I still think that's something that informs my view of the of that moment. I, I can see everyone probably doesn't agree with me here, but. I, I think he was feeling for the, for the man, and yes, Pepe would would have been given. You know, he had a, an advantage. He was knocking the ball past him so Peter's got an advantage. That should definitely come into consideration. But I still feel that at the heart of handball you've got to weigh up 10 You've got to weigh up how big the advantage was, and you've got to weigh up whether it's worthy of a penalty. Because as I said, all this has done this season has just made us realise that there is no such thing as a right and wrong answer with most of these.
0: I think that's an excellent point and I just want to, again, in my uh, role as uh, voice of the Football League, broaden this out because <laughs> yeah, this is also a point that's going to, you know, it's, it impacts and enrages fans across the country. But I wanted to ask, Gregor, as a defender then, you're talking about these moments when you'd have been in the box jumping for a header. Alan Shearer always says you can't jump without your arms. Feeling for a player to try and mark him. How often in your career did you either, A, get penalised for a handball that you were like, what? How, how the hell can I, or, you know, not necessarily for a penalty or just for anything, or did you actually find you probably got away with tapping it with your arm or your hand quite often and play would just continue? Because that's what I wonder whether that's filtering into the game at the top level. We're having this scrutiny on these moments where normally play would have just carried on. Not a kind of hand, hand up in the air, stopping a stopping a goal blatantly, but these little bounce up, hit you, let's just carry on, lads.
2: Yeah, I mean, I. I- Don't remember ever being penalised for something like that, and I think that's the way it should have been. I think this is we've gone in a in a different direction more recently, and
1: always ended up in the back of the net, Tom. That's why.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's cruel. That's true. Um, Yeah, no, I I just think this is all ties into the same discussion about the kind of referees being on edge beforehand about what they should be given and following the protocols and the the new law, and then. There have been a kind of change of heart and midway through the season. And now they're kind of, there's some that people have, because of what's going on, but in the first half of the season, they're looking at and going, this should be in a penalty. You know, there's no consistency. Well, I don't want, as I say, you don't want consistency when the first half of the season was a farce. You want Mm. the right decisions to happen now. And I think they're closer to that than they were.
1: I'd agree with that. The Mario Lumina handball against Tottenham in Fulham's previous game before this weekend, uh, disallowed a goal because it dropped to Joss Madger, who put it into the back of the net. I mean, though that was one where you wanted the referee to have a look at the screen and say, well, no, I, I can't give a handball for that. But the rule is, it hits an arm in the build-up to the goal, so it's handball. Whereas Lamina was literally, I mean, he couldn't have been stood more normally. It was, it was like you, he was waiting at bus stop. His arm was right. It could have been in his pockets. You know, there's no way that you should be giving handball for, for that. But of course, the rules are, you know it's in the build up to a goal it's handball so so strictly speaking it was the correct call but what i hate is the next day they go oh actually we'll change the rule on that because that was sort of ridiculous and you're like w- well it didn't take much to break your rule book in half did it i mean it's ridiculous
4: Matt. but that was to well, well i mean i agree with you that i mean you look at that decision and that does not again you just got assist you got to think about i mean the all that should underpin this really is an idea of what you know uh, what feels right, what the game expects is the defray and and that clearly did not feel right. I don't think it was just that incident that suddenly you know they had a agenda in in which they were looking at a number of goals like that. It was just so happened that you know it would happen the, the night before the meeting, so it, it looks like a knee-jerk thing. But I think they'd realise that was a that was a glitch in the rules uh, for some time, to be honest, and a, 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 a daft one.
1: I do think, though, and I've seen before. I think last season, Sheffield United headed it against Declan Rice's arm in the build-up to a goal for West Ham, and I I did think that was handball just because his arms were slightly out, even though it was also unintentional and he couldn't do anything about it because I think there was absolutely no way he would have ended up with the ball if it hadn't hit his arm. And I do think there still needs to be Some kind of you know some kind of judgment in the middle of it. I just think when you look at Lamina's, you can say okay, quite clearly, blasted at him. His arm was right beside his body, not in an unnatural position. A bit like the defenders at the other end of the pitch. You know, if your arms are right into your body and it hits your arm, it shouldn't be a penalty. If if you've done something to make your body bigger or increase the size of the silhouette or whatever term they use, then I think fair enough. But I think that discretion still needs to be there to make that one a black and white rule was was i think it was ridiculous from the start personally
4: well but that's yeah they, again they was they're straining overstraining um to try you know people say consistency consistency so then they overstrain to try and do black and white rules where they can say okay that you know you want consistency here it is and then again we we're, we're back we're moving the dial back to subjectivity which in this instance i think we're all agreed is a good thing but what does subjectivity bring <laughs> it brings decisions that everyone you know for every ten people who say that's the right decision, another hundred are going to say it's the wrong one, so you know that's that's the, it's just back to an acceptance that var is 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 not about deciding those marginal discretionary decisions
1: Matt there are a lot of people that carve out a, a niche place in the media landscape. supporting VAR has to be the nichest amongst them that that that's a piece of genius on your behalf. It's, it's a lonely,
4: very lonely place to be. I can tell you that. It's, it's, it's a, if you can't even sit in your own house and get support, then uh, you, know, you know you're in trouble. I'm not, I'm not sure there's anyone in Britain left, is there? I just, it's, but I've, I'm so, it's like I say, it goes back to, I've bored it before, sitting in a van in Holland about whenever it was, feels feels 100 years ago seeing the first VAR experiment thinking, that's interesting. I'll write a piece about that. And then I've been stuck with it ever since. And it's like, I can't get off the horse now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tom? I was just going to say on your point on Dicko sticking with it, he shouldn't be alone, really. He shouldn't be the only person in the country who supports VAR. Because let's be honest, technology in the game does rid us of really bad errors. But the point is that as we've discussed, the... The minute way in which we pick over these Timo Werner style offsides detracts from those moments in which watching something back on a video allows a referee to go, oh God, yeah, I've had a shocker there, sorry, overturn the decision. That's great. That is a a benefit to the game at the top level. At the very highest level when all the millions and millions of pounds are involved and people's careers are on the line, correcting those decisions, it has to be said, is a good thing. But working within the media, we pore over these incidents like Timo Werner because they allow us to go, what on earth are you getting involved in our game for? And so the, the best bit to me of VAR and the recent rules is the idea of clear and obvious. And if that, that, that germ of an idea could be behind, yeah, but if it could be behind the idea, you know, as Hugh said, there's nothing about the Lamina handball that was clear and obvious. So it, sh- it shouldn't be a part of a discussion. I'm just I'm just saying that there, we, it'd be great for not just for Matt Dickinson's uh, career but for for, for the state <laughs> of the game if if we could ha- if we were able to appreciate the moment in which VAR does good for the game but at the minute the rules mean that we can't
2: I just think that the it will be forever VAR's biggest problem is that as you see correct it's it's The best thing about it is its ability to correct the howlers. But once you have technology, everyone wants you to be able to correct and thinks, "Why can't we just correct the minute things as well?" So, as Tom says, if you can, if you can find a way to get beyond that and stick, you know, return to the clear and obvious thing, then yeah, possibly there's a bit of a brighter future when we're not like tearing a hair out over this every week. But I just can't see it because if there's a small a small error that can be corrected then why would you not correct it that's what everyone thinks
1: listen i'm just glad that the game at the etihad this weekend didn't come down to some sort of var decision from a manchester united perspective of course um manchester united really did what they regularly seem to do to manchester city under Oli solskjaer winning the derby ending city's 21 game winning streak to boot um, Gregor, let's talk about Manchester United's left back, Luke Shaw. a position you played in, of course. Um, he was man of the match. His game has certainly improved this season as well. Is he the best full back around right now? M- maybe Barja Cancelo at City.
2: He's the best English full back and best English left back, which is pretty remarkable when you think. In current, current form, I see a few faces being pulled there. Ben Chilwell is clearly a terrific player, but he's got a, a bit of a challenge on his hands now and it looks like they're going to play with a back three and wing backs and Alonso's re-emergence. Um, so, uh, you know, as I say, uh, six months ago that we would be saying that Shaw... I and mean, you've got to remember, he's only 25. It's not like bringing him back is like bringing back an old dinosaur. He's still someone who very much can be a player of the future for England, which Southgate... Very much wants and looks for, and he's kind of always looking to the future. So yeah, his he's, his improvement has been remarkable, and not just kind of not just def- defensively, but the way he's kind of his surgeon runs, his powerful runs with the ball at his feet through midfield, or you know he's got built up a really good relationship with Rashford. Uh, to see him kind of, as I say. Surging forward, driving forward with the ball like that, like we like we did when he first broke onto the scene at Southampton, it's great because there's always a kind of lingering feeling that after that, you know, horrific leg break, he um, wasn't quite the same. Maybe not quite the same turn of pace, um, and the, and then the whole the whole his whole time with with Josie Mourinho and his questioning of his kind of mental fortitude, fortitude essentially, uh, you, you kind of feared for him, and to see him to see him kind of blossom again. With still ten years of his career to go, is is brilliant for, for him and for Manchester United. So yeah, he's, it was it was it was a superb goal and a brilliant throw from from Henderson. And obviously, Cancelo made an error in kind of overcommitting himself, but Shaw took advantage of it and and uh, brilliant finish.
1: The most roundabout way ever to say Andy Robertson's better than uh, than Luke Shaw, I've ever heard. Gregor, thanks for that. Um, not in his
2: current form, no, absolutely not. I was thinking thinking very quickly. You know, you caught me on the hoof there. Trent Alexander-Arnold, <laughs> I would say, is the best fullback. I don't can't think of any better in the world, really. But in current form, he's not. He's not. He's not in that patch.
4: I thought Greg would be saying Scotland have got two better left backs than England have got one, but
2: uh... Kieran Tierney, obviously, yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah okay sorry Tierney's better, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was about to say you've got to stay consistent no, consistency is me. what we want on the podcast as well not just <laughs> in terms of our decisions mate everyone Scottish is better than someone English you've got to stick with it now you've, d- you've dug it go on, go well,
2: on let's Tom. go talk and make Tom <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I would just like to say a quick word for Manchester
0: United's other fullback on the other side Aaron Wan-Bissaka who very different oh. player to Luke Shaw but if they, I was watching the game yesterday and I think if there's one player who symbolizes Oli Gunnar Solskjaer's Manchester United, it's Aaron Wan-Bissaka because incredibly solid, works very, very hard, good defensively, good recovery when in a bad position, very like Oli, not very, very <laughs> good against great players. He's excellent against Raheem Sterling. Raheem Sterling must hate playing against Aaron Wan-Bissaka. Pep Guardiola must hate playing against Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. Wan-Bissaka's only thing he's got to improve on is just a bit more composure when he gets the chance in positions further up the pitch which is a bit like Holly's Man United when they get a chance they just seem to bottle it. So I just thought that Aaron Wan-Bissaka seems to sum up Solskjaer's Man United but I th- he was absolutely brilliant yesterday.
2: It's box office when those two guys go at each other because they're so they're so brave like and yeah. both in both both regards. So wan ninety percent of defenders, and I will class myself in this. Absolutely no problem. Take the easy option. You, 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 if you can send a, a winger or a, a forward back, make them play backwards. You know, pressurise them. You've done your job. You think that's it? I've done my job. Get back in shape. wan does that, but then he, he he's always he always goes to win the ball. And the amount of times you see him rob it when Sterling looks like he's already been pushed back, and most people will be content with that. He's in on him, and and the and the same the opposite is true for the same is true. Sorry for for Sterling when he gets the ball, despite all the kind of how good a defender Juan is, he'll keep going at him. So that's what made it so kind of such a box office kind of uh, clash between them. And it always, it always has been brilliant.
1: I wonder if the improvements that Luke Shaw has made was down to Alex Tellez being brought in by Manchester United in the summer, that little bit of competition for his place. And I wonder if if Manchester United bringing a right back who could credibly challenge Aaron wan whether that element to his game going forward could be improved as well, whether uh, there is a little bit in Aaron wan that knows he'll start every week at right back, it's been a problem area for Manchester United of late, um, aside from his signing, that is. But I just think the backup options aren't really there. They're linked with Norwich's Max Aaron, who I think would be a great, great addition. And maybe that could drive, particularly in the final third, some improvements to wan as well, Tom.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think maybe push him on to the next level. Because as I say, I was, I was obviously being slightly tongue-in-cheek saying he's symptomatic. Sim- I was being slightly tongue-in-cheek saying that he was... Symbolic of Solskjaer and his uh, time at Manchester United, but he does need to improve that side of his game going forward. Um, and when he gets into the opposition half in those positions, you know, on the corner of the penalty area, not just his delivery and his final ball, but his decision making as well, that'll take him to that next uh, elite level fullback, in which in the modern game is such a key position. But I, ju- I was just wondered on Wan Bissaka. There's been talk recently about his uh, international. allegiance to talk about him not playing for England and playing for Congo instead I wondered whether on current form and with the Euros coming up whether Gareth Southgate should be making a call no no Gregor quite rightly picks out Trent as a superb talent but he's not in the best of form this season anyone think he should be an England player?
4: I think personally I I think he's going to Struggle to get in, to be honest. I think the, uh, um, particularly with the wing back system that Gareth looks set to use. I just think that obviously that puts uh, even more onus on the on the attacking side of things. And I think when you see we saw, um, as Ian Hawke has written this morning, Trippier's is back uh, in uh, back playing uh, and looking in decent form. You have got Reece James, obviously. Um, you got Trent. Uh, I think Aaron Wembasaka's fourth choice at, at best. Um, so,
2: Lampy. I'd even have put James Justin before he did his ACL. Would it well, be? Yeah, exactly. And Lamp,
4: Lam, yeah. And in terms of the attacking side of it, Lampy as well is 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 up there. So in the, particularly in the system that Gareth Scott, I mean, you obviously if you're wampusack you're not going to make an international judgment based on on that sort of short termism. But I think he's he's going to have to be extremely patient before he starts uh, racking up England caps.
2: That demonstrates what the kind of priority is now for a fullback because he's probably the best defender, one-on-one defender anyway, out of all of them. Perhaps positionally, you know, there's still the odd the odd mistake here and there, but you'll learn that. But as I say, the full-back now, nowadays is almost more important what they do going forward than, than defensively.
0: Playing on the right of the back three, Gareth's favourite back three. We had Kyle Walker at the last World Cup as a full-back playing as a third centre-back. Aaron Wan-Bissaka is that good defensively, you know, particularly one-on-one, great recovery pace. Play him on the right side, John Stones, Harry Maguire is coming home. You can see it now.
1: <laughs> oh, it's, listen, it's, it's, it's not the worst idea in the world. Um, Matt, you Well, it's not the worst idea in the world. No, I mean, I can see I can see what you're thinking. If I wanted to dissect Aaron Wambasaka's game a little bit more, I'd say I'd still be worried about his marking in terms of that that role as well. So um, that that is the only thing. I just don't think he reads the area. Um, massively well as a fullback, And I just think, you know, as a back three, I would, I'd be slightly worried about him anyway. Um, on the other side, though, Matt Dickinson, the England squad coming up, not this week, probably next week or the week after. Luke Shaw, is he going to be brought back, do you think, by Gareth Southgate?
4: I think he will. I think, I, I think you know, particularly, um, yeah, a manager w- wants to, you know, get the best players in. And he's uh, up there. He's playing regularly, like we said. Chilwell's sort of, there's lots of chopping and changing at Chelsea, which is... Um, you know, potentially making, uh, th- they're going to disrupt, um, his time there. I mean, equally, if Chilwell can sort of make that position his own, playing a wing back system could help him, you know, um, in terms of, you know, Southgate looking as a wing-back rather than a full-back. But no, I think Shaw has to be involved. because, And also, as an England manager, you have to reward form players. You have to reward guys who fight back. And as as the guys have said before, I think that that one of the really impressive things about Shaw is the way he's turned things around himself as well. I mean, I think, you know, yeah, he's been not just through... uh, Form issues, injury issues, I think, you know, sort of being battered by Jose. I remember pictures of him, he almost sort of being ridiculed a bit when he was sort of uh, holiday shots of him looking overweight as well. You know, he's been, you know, um, some of this he's got to take responsibility for, obviously. But yeah, if a guy fights back, then that should be recognised.
2: Can we just briefly discuss that he's uh, certainly... Twitter seems to tell me that he's six foot one.
1: Nonsense! Absolute nonsense! It must be. It's um. He was officially recorded somewhere. I think it might be Wikipedia as six foot one, and people have picked up on this.
2: Yeah, it's going to go viral, isn't it? I went to Carrington. He can't be six foot one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I went to. I'm six foot one. I went to Carrington. I interviewed Luke Shaw. I can tell you now, first hand experience. He is nowhere near as tall (laughs) as you. Not even close.
0: You're taller than six foot one, though. Sorry to try and I'm, I'm bust a I'm hole in your like theory, foot... <laughs> but I'm six foot three and I've shared a lift with you, and you're nearly as tall as me. So maybe he yeah, is six foot like, one and you're I'm, I'm taller like, than you
1: think you are. Oh <laughs> no, I'm like six one and a half, man. I'm not, I, I just maybe touching six foot two. Luke Shaw is like at least half a foot shorter than me, like clearly nowhere near as tall as me. I mean, someone out there, it's, it must be a typo. You know, because you can't go from five foot ten to, to six foot one. I don't know what's going on, but there is no way.
0: Shay Given was the other great one as well, because he, he always struck me as such a small goalkeeper. And then whenever I looked yeah. it up, which was several times during his career, it, it maintained that he was six foot at least. Some said six foot one. But you don't think Shay Given's that, that tall?
1: No, I def- sure. I, I, another player I've met, he's six foot definitely. <laughs> I like definitely, this. It. I
2: like he's just connecting us in every single. I mean, I'm enjoying. It.
1: Shane Given is is definitely he, He's tall. He, he's someone that you would consider to be a tall guy. He's at least six foot tall. Interesting.
0: Um, I'm enjoying this. Uh, Gregor, come to the game podcast. Gregor Robertson <laughs> will give you all the details on what it was like as a player. Matt Dickinson will defend VAR, and Hugh wasn't. The problem, the problem, the problem for
1: goalkeepers is, the, is <laughs> the problem for goalkeepers is if they play with massive centre halves, people go they're not that tall because you see them standing. Beside side with another all the time and if the goalkeeper is not towering over the defenders people say he's not that big so it very much depends on the players that you're playing with in terms of how, how you're perceived by the public that's all I'm saying or who I interview in which case you'll get an accurate <laughs> view on on how tall people are specifically um, just quickly before we end um, Manchester United obviously Manchester is red right now we'll talk about them in the ending uh, City's run of course they did extend their own good run at the moment though they're up to 22 league League games unbeaten away from home. And since it was a theme of runs, it got us thinking on ultimate runs, runs that, that teams have gone through, players have gone through, as odd as they might be. Um, Tom Clark, why don't you get us started on this?
0: I'm going to get us started, not with one of my own, but our colleague James Restall sent uh, on the, our group WhatsApp the best one I've heard, which was that his side, Leighton Orient, had the longest run without a player scoring 20 league goals in a season between 1978 and 2016, which I thought was the best niche run (laughs) that anyone could come up with, which was fantastic. But but mine is not necessarily a long run, but it's purely for how it ended. And it's in uh, 2012 in the German league, FC Magdeburg. uh, They'd gone five games without scoring a goal. You might remember this, but it was one of my (laughs) favorite stories when I was breaking into... Breaking into journalism, i just started a national newspaper and I remember this coming out as a great picture story. They'd, they'd gone five games without scoring a goal. They were in pretty poor form. They were low down in the, the table. And um, this is kind of German third or fourth tier or something. So, you know, stadiums aren't packed out. And their fans came to a game with a banner which read, essentially, don't worry, lads, we'll show you where the goal is, which is quite funny enough. But then proceeded to a big group of them, around 50 of them, all got out giant arrows all painted in different luminous colors and walked around the stadium until they were stood behind the goal, pointing these arrows at the goal during the game. It was absolutely hilarious. If you haven't seen it, just look up FC Magdeburg 2012 uh, and you'll find, find the clips and the pictures. It was fantastic. And in brilliantly tragic fashion, they then scored in that game. They ended the, the, the goal drought in that game. Fans went mental, only to then lose the game 2-1 in the 89th minute. I mean, that's like, it's just, that is perfect, perfect football, uh, bitter, bittersweet moment.
2: I'm probably going to have to reference uh, Fort William here, who went 840 days and 73 games without a win uh, until they won won 5-2 against Nairn County in July 2019. Fort William essentially famed for being the worst team in the world. The worst team (laughs) certainly the worst team in the uk and i you know not heard many many worse than that they're basically playing in a league that uh the scottish Highland league that is too good for them um but there's no other football really to play in because they're so remote (laughs) and they've got to like travel to they've got like eight eight hour round trips on kind of windy single track roads and a coach where everyone gets gets off the bus and feels sick every week um so it's a kind of recurring theme. And, and as I think I mentioned before, I went up there once and there was a torrential downpour and um, and uh, the game was cancelled. So that was a, that was a cracking trip for the journeyman. So yeah, Fort <laughs> William. I also noticed in my, uh, I was thinking the worst run I've ever been on. And you re- you'll recognize that I'm saying worse rather, th- rather than the best because there weren't many great long runs. I think once in for- at Forest, we went 17 games without a win. Which is pretty bad. And it cost Paul Hartley's job.
4: I have lovingly dusted down my copy of the uh, <laughs> Cambridge United, the league era, that's a um, best selling book. But um, I will take you back to 1983, 84 when I was, uh, well, I've been about 15 ish. And um, Cambridge United, my team, um, set a record of, league record of 31 games without a win. We went from the beginning of October to the end of April without a league win. Uh, I saw an awful lot of those God it was miserable but the great thing about losing sort of non-winning runs is that when you win as we did that's it was the best day of my life because not only did we win (laughs) we we beat Newcastle United who were about to go up they had Kevin Keegan um uh I've got it all wrote Glenn Rhoda, um RIP they had Peter Beardsley Chris Waddle Terry McDermott and that was the end. It was a dodgy penalty, scuffed penalty to beat them one 0 after um, yeah thirty-one matches. And I can tell you, yeah, I've I've never been happier in my life. Don't tell my kids or my wife, but yeah, that was it. That was the peak. I can just add on to that. We went. To, we set that record that year, and then the following year we set a new record for most league defeats in a season. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and the fo- the following year, watching them, I I've, I used to have it in a notebook somewhere. I, I went to 19 matches and saw one victory in 19 matches. So there you go. But there's nothing like fan misery to to really get you going.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it says an awful lot that this, this segment, Hugh, you know, introed it on the idea of Manchester City on being on a brilliant winning run, and we've all selected negative <laughs> negative <laughs> friends, <laughs> from Germany to Scotland down into the lower leagues of England, we've all selected losing runs. So Hugh, are you going to end with a bit of
1: positivity? I'm just going to read Adams, who got in touch with us on social media. He says, Bradford City, this is a positive one. Most consecutive penalty shootout wins in the history of English football. Nine of them between October 2009 and December 2012. The run ended, he says, in the 15-16 season. I guess someone else must have broken the record. Um, But there you go
4: it had to be much more fun if it was penalty shootout defeats in a row and uh, you know i mean you know he's missed the spirit of it completely
2: <laughs> we should probably add as uh, jeff stelling used to always say that they'll be dancing in the streets of tns uh yes this weekend yes, because TNS right. are, of course the team who have the the world record 27 which was achieved in 2016 um beating the the great ajax team who had 26 uh, so yes tns added a interviewed the manager who's since been dismissed actually so bit of a shame for Scott Rusko but I interviewed them uh, for a piece on Saturday and they were let's just say they were very keen to keep to keep hold of the record so they'll be very pleased
1: Absolutely special place in football history stays with the new Saints uh, Gentlemen thank you very much Matt Dickinson Tom Clark and Gregor Robertson for being with me for the past hour or so been a pleasure as always to those of you listening thank you as well remember if you enjoy the podcast rate us leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from and make sure you're subscribed as well you can get a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times for more of our award winning journalism on all of your devices. Sign up today, you'll get one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. There's Champions League football to come. We will see you on Thursday.